0: Many of you have given faithfully, sacrificially, generously to the ministry and work of our church. It might be all of you. I don't know. I don't see our giving specifics. I see what our members see at business meetings or at members' meetings, just how much has come in, how we're doing on budget, that kind of thing. But if you're in that boat where you've given faithfully, generously, sacrificially, of your hard-earned income to the life and the work of our church family, I have a question for you. How do you know that we, as a church, that I, as a pastor, am using it appropriately? How do you know that this is not some get-rich-quick scheme, a pyramid scheme, In one sense, you know in the fact that you don't see me pulling up to church every Sunday in a different sports car. As we've gone over budgets at members' meetings and we vote on yearly budgets and see expenditures, you haven't seen where I've finagled a a, a, a new helicopter into the budget hoping nobody would You said ministerial malfeasance. Ministerial sin is far too common, is it not? How often do we hear of pastors who commit financial impropriety or who commit some or some other form of disqualifying sin it seems as if the news of that at least in the circles i run in and in, in the seeing news from other churches from other pastors around the world you hear of that far too often but how do we know how do we work to avoid such sin. And even how do we as a church work to pursue a faithful ministry? In one sense, we ask the question, what should be found in a faithful minister? One who is in it for the needs of the church and not his own. And in that, we can learn more about what our DNA should be as a church. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-16, I am going to make the case, I'm going to argue from this passage that a faithful minister sacrificially preaches the gospel for the sake of the church's transformation by God's Word. Let me say that again. A faithful minister sacrificially preaches the gospel for the sake of the church's transformation by God's Word. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 through 16. The words are provided in the bulletin that you received when you arrived, or they're also provided in the Bibles that are in the pew rack in front of you. That's on page 1255, if you wish to turn there. So whichever way you get God's Word open in front of you, I encourage you to follow along now as I read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, beginning in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, while we proclaimed the gospel to proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, That when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This morning, as we look at the faithful minister, we will see two things from God's Word. The faithful minister sacrificially preaches the gospel, That's in verses 1 through 12. And the faithful minister celebrates transformation by God's Word, verses 13 to 16. First, the faithful minister sacrificially preaches the gospel. If you recall, the church in Thessalonica, which is modern-day Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki, I, I remember the pronunciation Then I locked down in my brain and knew I was going to wrongly mispronounce that. It's in modern-day northern Greece. It was Macedonia at the time. The church was born into a fiery cauldron of opposition to Christianity. Chapter 1 features Paul's thanksgiving to God that the church has stood firm in the midst of persecution. And now as he moves to chapter 2, Paul defends his ministry. So You see, he had been forced to flee Thessalonica. Amidst the, the, the hot fires of persecution, Paul and those with him, for reasons we don't fully know, they had been forced to flee. Perhaps even in the middle of the night, after only just a few short weeks of ministry there with the church. In the after, aftermath of his departure, there were undoubtedly some, perhaps false teachers, perhaps even... Christians in the church rightly asking, where has Paul and where have these others who were with him gone? Or maybe it was non-Christians looking in on the church and they were saying, you know, if he was the real deal, this Paul, he would still be here. Or you see, this Christianity thing, it sounds interesting, but it lifts you up only to leave you high and dry and standing on the cliff's edge. Paul must respond to such accusations and questions. Not because he's hypersensitive to his own reputation and worried about what others will say about him, but because he knows as one who has preached the gospel, if his character was maligned, his message, the gospel, would also be maligned. So if we take a brief tour Through verses 1 to 9, we see four references, four mentions of the gospel. In verses 2, 4, 8, and 9, Paul repeatedly emphasized the gospel that was at the heart of his ministry. But if you read these more carefully, you'll see how they came amidst various means of sacrifice. Look at verse 2 as Paul preached in the midst of conflict. He says, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the Gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he preached in conflict to preach the Gospel. He did not preach for personal praise or financial gain as verse 4 and 5 testify. He says, we were entrusted with the Gospel, so to speak, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. You see, one thing that would happen in a place like Thessalonica at Paul's day was there would be these great uh, Roman orators, these great, great speakers who could captivate audiences. And they would arrive into town with the same celebration, with the same pomp and circumstance As which a well-known celebrity or highly touted athlete might arrive in a place today. They would be treated to the finest meals, to the greatest celebrations for them. And Paul says, we did not appeal to that. We did not come to be celebrities amongst you. We came to be servants of you. That is what the gospel does. It makes its ministers servants. So they came in conflict. They came not seeking their own great gain. In verse 8, Paul spoke of how he gave of himself with the Gospel. See that? Paul says, verse 8, "...so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us." And finally, the fourth mention of the Gospel... Paul labors at other work so as to not be a financial burden to the church. We saw back in Acts 17 last week, verses 1 through 9, at the earliest days the church was founded, its leaders were were harassed by the authorities and even uh, uh, they were extorted of of great financial uh, resources or or of great financial costs. In order to be freed from prison. And and we know from other instances in Scripture and in history, the church in Thessalonica was probably quite financially uh, uh, poor, quite financially hindered. And Paul says, I did not come to you that you might financially be advantageous to me. But he says in verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. For we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul and those laboring with him did other jobs. Maybe they were washing dishes at restaurants. Maybe they're making tents for people to dwell or to sell their goods and property out of. But whatever it was, he did not take financial payment from the church at Thessalonica. And so all of these help to shape, help to craft a picture of a minister who is seeking to serve the church in the Gospel and not serve the church for his own gain. A minister who is trying to be faithful to the task. Because after all, the faithful minister sacrificially preaches the Gospel. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but back in May at the Louvre, in Paris, what appeared to be an elderly lady jumped out of her wheelchair and hurled cake at the Mona Lisa, striking Lisa, Mona, Mona Lisa, whatever her friends call her, striking her right, in, right here. Thankfully, she was protected by the thick bulletproof glass that is sealed Protecting from attacks like that, protecting from perhaps some kind of power failure where temperatures could rise very high or drop very low, or humidity could increase to a damaging level for such an old painting. Mona Lisa was protected, not from this elderly lady. It was actually a younger man who had dressed as an elderly lady and was in a wheelchair so he could get closer to the front. This young man was protesting uh, climate change, And what he perceived to be a lack of action or insufficient action in response to climate change. Now, I don't know why he was holding Mona Lisa responsible, but nonetheless, how often, how easily might we have something, i.e., the gospel, that is far more precious than the Mona Lisa? And yet we either intentionally or unintentionally desecrate her by how we conduct ourselves. How easily do our words, the same mouths that we profess and talk of Christ and of His grace, gossip and backbite and respond snarkily to those around us. Thus, unintentionally or even intentionally and not caring, throwing cake on the precious jewel of the gospel. To Paul, the gospel is of such great value that he will do whatever is necessary to protect it from harm, even keeping his own life and ministry under the close, watchful eye, under the microscope to make sure he is not bringing any shame upon the gospel. What is our attitude towards the gospel, brothers and sisters? Is it more like protecting the Mona Lisa? Being vigilant? Sensitive to making sure that no harm is coming upon her? Or do we treat, her, treat the gospel more like not a famous world-renowned painting, but some loose paperwork that we lose in a drawer or in a briefcase or a backpack I remember growing up in school and having my backpack and uh, showing up for school, and I might try to find homework or whatever in the backpack and can't find it. And then four months later, I'm going through the backpack and everything, and oh, there's that old math homework, wrinkled up, and it had been kind of crushed at the bottom by books and notebooks and everything. How often is the gospel not a diamond in which we possess and protect, but something that gets trampled under the lack of attentiveness in our words or even in our lives? Does our attitudes towards obedience to the demands of the gospel, to take up our cross and follow Christ, does it go in and out of our minds and our conscience seemingly arriving when convenient and then slipping away like a napkin that falls between the front seat and the console in the hurry of us driving through life? Brothers and sisters, this is a word first and foremost for ministers of the gospel. But we would all be wise to carefully reflect on and consider what our lives reveal about the gospel that we profess. You know, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're still giving evaluation to the claims of Christ, to the claims of Christianity, I hope that you're seeing that this message of the gospel that we are passionate about, this message of Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and and, and the centrality of all things revolving around the Son of God who came to earth and who has beckoned us to take up our cross and follow Him. I hope you'll see that this message is not to us some kind of pyramid scheme. We are not trying to sell a product that we are going to claim will make your life better. We don't embrace this message of the gospel to make our lives better, to make our lives more profitable, to make our lives more enjoyable. We embrace the gospel. We embrace Christianity by entering into a new life which, where Jesus in his glory, gets glory over our lives. And he becomes of supreme importance to us, not because we have added him to an old life, but because we have been born into a new life that revolves around him. And as we see Paul count his life of such little value, only that the gospel be treasured, only that the message of Christ and the salvation that is found in him be made paramount. May we keep this in mind as we see ways in which Paul describes his ministry to the church. There are four ways, four descriptions that Paul gives of himself and faithful ministry uh, uh, in sacrificially preaching the gospel for the church in Thessalonica. Well, actually three are in this section in verses 1 through 12, and then the fourth we'll see in verses 13 to 16 at the back end of the sermon. The first way in verse 4 is a steward. It's not said outwardly like a couple other examples, but it is said implicitly. In verse 4, Paul says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. You see that word, entrusted with the gospel. A steward is one who is entrusted. This communicates the idea of one who is an approved representative on behalf of another. Paul's ministry was not one that was given to him because of his great preaching gifts, because he had sold books because he would be a great marketing agent for the gospel. No. Paul's ministry was given to him because he was found trustworthy by God. He was entrusted with the gospel. Look at the end of verse 4. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Brothers and sisters who stumble over your seeming lack of gifts, lack of abilities, May I encourage you, as Paul writes here, God does not give His Gospel to and entrust this message of salvation that we share with others to those who have great gifts and abilities, first and foremost. God calls us simply to faithfulness. Your task is not to finally hone, finally craft your skills. It's to pursue faithfulness to be shaped, transformed by the Gospel, and allow Him to do the rest. If you've seen the TV show, The West Wing, there's an episode where President Bartlett had to fire the U.S. ambassador to Bulgaria because the ambassador had gotten into some shenanigans in Bulgaria. And I'm not a great expert on what ambassadors should or should not do on behalf of the United States government. Uh, elsewhere around the world, but I think a good rule of it is don't get into shenanigans. Don't reflect poorly upon your country that has sent you. It's a really quite funny scene. The president goes a long way back with the ambassador and his wife and he wants to make sure they're going to be okay, and so he has the ambassador in one room waiting to fire him. He has a, a, a chairman of a major company in another room in the Oval Office, uh, and he's talking to his chairman of the company and says, I need you to hire to your company the ambassador to Bulgaria. He said, well, isn't he the ambassador? And he said, he's about to be. I'm going to have to let him go. Well, why are you letting him go? Gross incompetence, but you're going to hire him. So then he goes to the ambassador and he tells him the reasons why he's letting him go. And he will no longer be ambassador to Bulgaria. He had violated this responsibility to faithfully represent the United States without bringing any shame or embarrassment upon his country. Faithful ministry is not flashy, it's faithful. If you survey throughout Paul's letters, he always hammers home the necessity of believing the gospel and living life in accordance with the gospel. You never see Paul boast of great numbers of conversions that he has seen in his work. You never hear him write, we planted churches in X amount of cities last year. We saw X amount of baptisms, therefore send us your money because the hand of the Lord clearly is upon us. Rather, you hear Paul continually play the tune, harp on the necessity of faithfulness in in the ministers of the gospel and in the churches they pastor. Brothers and sisters, we will not stand before God one day and give account for how successful we were. We'll give an account to whether we were faithful. What are those words that we all hope to hear from the Lord Jesus one day? Well done, good and successful servant. Wait, no, that's not it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Paul's faithfulness sounds appropriate, but Paul gives further explanation as he goes. Faithfulness is the kind of thing that broadly we talk about. And we say, yes, I want to be faithful. But what does faithfulness look like in the minister of the gospel? Paul gets on with it. The first illustration he gives is in verses 7 and 8. He describes faithfulness uh, with the illustration of a nursing mother. Look at that. He says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. There are not many more examples of sacrificial, gracious, tender, merciful care towards another being than a nursing mother. A mother of a small child has to be attentive to all the needs of the baby. A mother of a small child, a nursing mother does not get to clock in and out. And when the baby wakes up crying at 2 a.m., say, sorry, I'm off duty. We experience this a little with Nicholas. Not a whole lot, but I have heard, and i I've known myself and I've seen parents of new babies, particularly when they bring home like a firstborn child. Perhaps some of you can resonate with this. You can remember this. Talk about getting the baby loaded up from the hospital, bringing the baby home, and then you get home and you're like, all right, who's going to take care of this little guy or girl? Oh, oh, that, that's us? All day? E- every day? Really? And, and, and how long? 18, eight, eight, th- years? Brothers and sisters, a nursing mother recognizes that the life of the one whom she is taking care of is far more precious than her own. The church will need food, will need protection, will need monitoring of health. All of this is the responsibility it's funny that this is the illustri- illustration he gives. Pastors, elders, they have a responsibility to teach the Word of God, to build up the church in truth, and we're actually going to see that in an illustration to come. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy, Paul refers to the church as a pillar and a buttress of truth, but they also have a responsibility to graciously, patiently, tenderly care for the needs of the church. This illustration of a nursing mother elsewhere just on this idea of great gifts versus faithfulness one thing to observe if you were to look at the qualifications of an elder or a pastor from 1 Timothy or from Titus 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 if you were to go read those you would find that all of these are things that the average normal christian should aspire to should excuse me should pursue the only one that might set the christian apart or set like an elder or pastor apart from the church or from church members is the ability to teach. Otherwise, all of these are just hallmarks of a faithful Christian because elders, pastors are to model this, and be an example of it to the church. But not only are they to be nursing mothers, they're to be a father, like a father with his children in verses 11 and 12. You know how, like a father with his children, we, were exhort, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Three things those that he labored with him did they exhorted, they encouraged, they charged. Do you see the complementary nature of, of nursing mother versus exhorting, encouraging, charging father? All of this is undergirded by a heart of sacrifice for the good of the body. This is a healthy, faithful ministry. Pastors are not to be domineering, not to be uh, uh, continually uh, combative, continually uh, uh, squelching, continually pushing down, continually uh, humiliating. Yet they are to uphold the Word of God and are to uphold and exhort The congregation exhort the church family to live in light of and imply the gospel to their life day by day, week by week. But at the same time, pastors are not to be self-help gurus, seeking to help you unlock the best you that you can be, seeking to help you to to be all that you can be, uh, not for the army, but for the sake of you being true to yourself. No, they're to help you as a nursing mother does not want to leave a little baby in that infantile state, but helps the baby to grow in Christ. So pray that I and that our elder, that we we would live in these two well. Exhorting, charging when needed. And nursing, caring, binding up when needed. The imagery of a shepherd tenderly caring for the wounded, for the injured sheep while also watching out and keeping their eyes peeled for the wolves or foxes that would come in and seek to destroy the sheep. This is the ministry that Paul sets out for the faithful minister. Brothers and sisters, would we be well served in understanding this the nature of pastoral shepherding? the kind of shepherding that we need. And with this kind of care in mind, it makes perfect sense that the faithful minister must sacrificially preach the gospel. Giving of himself. Not for his own gain, but for the gain and the good of those under his charge. But he must not only sacrificially preach the gospel, he must emphasize and celebrate the gospel's power to transform the church. And that takes us to our second point in verses 13 to 16. The faithful minister celebrates transformation by God's word. What we've seen thus far is the faithful ministry is not about building the platform or the portfolio of the minister, it's about sacrifice for the good of the body. With this in mind, we can look at what stirs the heart of the faithful minister. Look in verse 13. Look at the emotion that he that Paul reveals here. We also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you, believers. They thank God constantly because the word of God was at work in the church. There is no greater joy that I can have as your pastor than to see your growth in the faith. To see the Word of God taking root. To have conversations about your own sanctification, that's your own maturation in the faith, and say, you know, I think so and so, I see hallmarks, I see roadmarks of their improvement, of their maturing in the faith, like, like, I think they would have talked differently about that or viewed this situation or this trial in a different manner a year ago, three years ago, five years ago than they do now. But I see testimonies, hallmarks of that growth. What a blessing. What a joy that is to see. Remember, Paul has described the ministry as a stewardship done with the heart of a nursing mother, done with the attention and, and the conviction of a good father. And now we have the last description of ministry. The faithful minister is a herald of God's Word. A herald of a king greater than the rulers of the earth. This is in verse 13. This, When you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us. This heralding. For all the press secretaries and spokespeople that President Biden or President Putin or King Salman in Saudi Arabia or President Xi in China have, the herald of God's Word has an infinitely greater task of who they speak on behalf of. What a sobering task. Brothers and sisters, I want to see you transformed by God's Word not transformed by what I want my own mind and my own thoughts to be for you. And this is where this is very concerning to me as I think about the dangers that I face in pastoral ministry and preaching ministry. There are many ministers, many preachers out there who pastor churches, who who shepherd their congregations in very faithful, God-honoring, God-glorifying ways. And yet there are others who, perhaps even unbeknownst to them, They're not lifting Christ up so high, they're lifting themselves up so high. You know, I was talking to somebody about how done I am with summer. Or done with the heat, the excessive heat. And I was making a remark to them that in summer, it feels like, especially when you are in a place that doesn't have air conditioning, it feels like there's a very significant difference between... 90 degrees and 80 degrees. You can do 80. 90 starts to get frustrating and difficult. Seth and Cindy, coming from Egypt, you're probably like, oh, we take 90 all the time. But the danger that I fear is that I would preach with all the right words. That our services, we would do the right things. And yet there would creep into my heart A sense where perhaps if I was diagnosed in a neutral, unbiased manner, the temperature was 80. It was almost there, but it wasn't fully there. Because I was more concerned with people made into what I want them to be. More concerned with what they think about me. More concerned with wanting the praise of the church family. Wanting the pats on the back of the church family. Wanting the celebration is, oh, he's a good preacher, he's a good pastor. More concerned with that than wanting to see the church and myself transformed by God's Word. Oh, that this would not be so for me and that this would not be so for us. We don't need any more word of men. Whether around here or in our world. We don't need any more hot takes that get people riled up and win the moment, but bind or chasten the soul. We need transformation by the Word. By the Gospel. By Christ lifted high. The job of the preacher is to blend into the scenery. Simply lift up God's Word which reveals and speaks on behalf of God to His people. As God does the supernatural work of transforming His church, and get this, here is why the preacher's voice must be A, lifting up the Word of God, yet B, so so small that the Word of God is the only thing that is heard. Because it is God and His voice, the same voice and authority by which He spoke all things into existence back in Genesis, that is the voice that speaks to us by His Word. How dare I or any preacher think we have anything better to say than the God who has created all of us, who spoke creation to existence by his word and has given us his word that we might be shepherded by it. There's too much at stake for a herald to try to share the glory. The Thessalonians had been born into a world of opposition to the faith. Paul recounts in verse 14, the Jewish church in Judea had suffered from their own people and now the Thessalonians were suffering at the hands of their fellow countrymen. And just a note there, as you see that at at the end of verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. That's a little more difficult, right? Perhaps in one sense, it's a little more painful to be rejected by those who are near to you by those who you share in their blood. You are of the same flesh as them. And yet they reject you and the gospel that you profess. The the suffering of the Judean church must have been especially poignant for Paul because before becoming a Christian, he had signed off on or or, or sanctioned the persecution of the church in Judea. And in verses 15 and 16, he references his fellow Jewish leaders who still oppose the gospel, even much to their own eternal harm. He has been on both sides, one who was threatened by the gospel and thus sought its destruction, and then the one who had been broken down by the gospel and been made whole in Christ. Therefore, he says to himself, how can I try to build Paul back up when Christ is the one who brought me down and has made me new? Some might read what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. Speaking of the Jewish opposition to the church in Judea, Paul writes, just read it as I follow. The Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul recognizes the stakes there. This is not some kind of anti-Semitism on Paul's part. He's being blunt about those who are opposing the Gospel. And their hard-heartedness. We remember his pattern of going into new cities, new communities, new regions. Going to the Jews first, to the synagogues. His own countrymen with a broken heart pleading for them to come to Christ. Romans 9 tells us of his heart as he writes of the angst within him for his fellow Jews and how he would give up his own salvation and, and he would endure the wraths of God in hell if only his fellow Jews might come to know Christ as the Messiah and Lord. Paul lifts up their opposition here as they were seeking to put Jesus back in the tomb. They were seeking to roll the stone back in front of it. They were seeking to put word back out that this man had died justly for his blasphemous crimes against God. But the faithful minister of the gospel seeks to not do these things, but seeks to lift Christ up. The faithful minister of the gospel seeks to hide behind the background of the cross and of Christ. The faithful minister of God seeks to be nothing more than 3D glasses, helping you not behold himself, but behold in full glory the wonder of Christ and of Christ alone as the Son of God sent to save us from our sins and sent to be the one by whom we come to know the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. How do you know that your offerings are going to the right work? Is Jesus being lifted high? Is the character of the ministry of this church about transformation by the power of the Word of God a faithful minister sacrificially preaches the Gospel for the sake of the church's transformation by God's Word. And Brothers and sisters, a faithful church is one where the Gospel is preached and the people are transformed. Not by a charismatic personality, but by God's Word. And though not many of us will preach, and this has been a charge to those of us who will preach and those who will shepherd the church first and foremost, all of us will pray. Will you pray for myself, pray for us, pray for this to be the heartbeat of our ministry. Christ lifted high, church transformed by the word of God. And will we all give careful attention to the transforming work of God as he imparts the wonder of the gospel upon our hearts more and more and more by his grace through the faithful ministry of his word. Let's pray together. God, we ask that You would cause this to be the heartbeat of our church and our life together. Transformed by You through Your Word, through ministers who are not perfect, but ministers who pursue Christ and lift Him high. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The One who works in and delights in building His people in accord with His glory.